0: Roundtable Osteuropa, ein Podcast des Zentrums für Osteuropa und internationale Studien.
1: Welcome to the podcast Roundtable Osteuropa from the ZOIS. Today's podcast is about research, mental health and traumatizing contexts. How to take care. The reason for today's podcast is that, especially with the war in Ukraine, many researchers understood that we are, which is actually obvious, oftentimes in contact with traumatizing situations or contexts. Um, we work with people, we interview, we research them who have experienced trauma. Some of us are even from war contexts ourselves. And then, of course, there are our own background stories, our work conditions, which lead or may not lead to good mental health. So we decided at TOYS, but also in cooperation with other projects, to sit together and to talk about these um, things. And I'm very happy to have two experienced uh, guests with me who are willing to share their experiences, but also their expertise. One of them is Krista Cocciole. She has a BA in psychology and dance and is system therapist. Her work is trauma-informed and she focuses especially on the body. Her work is often meant to support organizations and communities in order to strengthen resilience and systemic social impact. Krista is based in Berlin but has 30 years of international experience for example, she worked in Bosnia during and after the war in the U.S., but also in Germany. Krista, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. My other guest is Hanna Vachitova. She is an ins- assistant professor and a senior economist at Kiev School of Economics in Ukraine. And she is right now a visiting fellow at Sedansk University in Denmark, so in South Denmark, from where she also joins us. Hannah's main research interest is uh, in migration economics, so labor migrants, internal displaced persons. She has a focus on skills dimension and employment, and she has been a leader and a member in numerous projects on migration or on related topics as education, health, gender, and well-being. Hannah, welcome also to you. Hi, hi. My name is Kerstin Bischel. I'm the academic coordinator of a research network uh, named CONCOOP, also here at SOISP. Our researchers oftentimes work on conflictuous and often traumatizing situations that is um, mainly in Eastern Europe. Myself, I have a background in history. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on everyday violence and gender relationships uh, in the Red Army during World War II. So also from my perspective, I have dealings with conflicts and um, traumatizing contexts in my research. Before we start with the podcast, I would like to share two background information with our listeners. The first one is it's not the first time the three of us um, are sitting together and talking of uh, talking about trauma and mental health and research. We already met and discussed these issues in June when we were at a unit retreat in Brandenburg, and one could say that the podcast today is the harvest of this retreat. And the second thing I would like to share is um, that to some extent this podcast is a follow-up of another podcast we did at Soyuz. It um, was in June that Anastasia Zurenkova and Natalia Zaiko, also two UNED fellows, talked about researching Ukraine at war and you can find this podcast on the Zeus website too. So, so much for an introduction. I would like to start the first part of this podcast with questions about working within traumatizing contexts as individuals, but also as researchers and as therapists. So my, my first question goes to Krista. From your perspective as a psychologist, what is trauma and how does it affect people, especially those um, who work with subjects uh, within traumatic experiences? Mm,
2: The the way I see trauma is, um, trauma is anything that overwhelms our nervous system. And um, it can be conscious or unconscious, what we're witnessing, what we're experiencing and how it affects the body So trauma is the impact of our nervous system of what we're experiencing. Um, And thank you for this question, especially uh, how it impacts people working with people with traumatizing experiences. Um, This is often forgotten that we as humans we're, were wired to be in connection with others. That means when I'm witnessing or when I'm hearing um, stories of tra- traumatizing experiences, that's also leaving a trace on my nervous system um, as the witness. And this is something that is often forget forgotten in the kind of work that we're doing, um, that it is also impacting us and often um, when working with people in settings with traumatizing experiences, they'll often think, "Oh, I'm experiencing burnout or this and that." But it actually would could be secondary or vicarious trauma, and these two terminologies are used interchangeably often. Secondary trauma would be, um, say, a fireman. Uh, experiencing a situation, witnessing a situation, or somebody um, listening to stories. This would be secondary trauma, vicarious trauma. Vicarious meaning lived through. That's a Latin word for lived through. It it makes impacts on um, the witness's perspective on life and um, their health, the the way they are... um, maybe even spirituality and belief. It is, it's, it's changing actually the, the, the makeup of the witness, causing um, symptoms of post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder similar to somebody that has experienced the event.
1: Mm-hmm. Could you get a little bit more in detail? You said symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. something more concrete?
2: Sure. There's a whole list of how that could be showing up in somebody's life. And unfortunately, with our modern day, like burnout, um, it's very overlapping. So it could be things like sleeplessness, irritability. It could be also intrusive images. It could be scenes that are coming up during the day or at night. It can be a lack of motivation to do things that used to bring joy in one's life post-traumatic stress disorder is a list of of symptoms. Some of of these symptoms, if they last longer than three months after an event, then you can call this a post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's like the impacts impacts that an event has lasted on the nervous system and it hasn't quite um, integrated yet in the big picture.
1: Thank you. My next question goes to Hannah as somebody who on the one side, um, witnesses the events in Ukraine, uh, from South Denmark. But on the other hand, um, you are researching migration, health and well-being with the focus on uh, Ukraine. So how do you go along with what Krista just explained? Can you, to some extent, trace trauma in your data and research subjects, but also in the effects it has on the researcher?
0: Yes. Um, yeah, of course, we um, we can see those um, uh, points um, when we talk to people. Indeed, they say that they're sleepless we have substantial shares of respondents who mention that they experience anxiety they become more um, irritative or more reserved maybe uh, some of them uh, mentioned that the increased disappointments or increased, uh, a, not necessarily aggression, but extreme reactions to the ordinary things. So we do see that in the data. And although trauma is not per se a topic that economists focus on often, now we see that even in um, economic um, articles, economic research, we see this uh, element more and more. And in terms of researchers, I can speak here from personal experience when I was analyzing data and I was, yeah, you are like have two hats. <laughs> one is you as a person and one is you as a researcher and then you work with the uh, interviews or you look at the surveys and you um, noticing, oh yeah, I have these two. Or, oh, yes, I can relate to that as someone who is experiencing this as a person. Thank you. I
1: have a follow-up because with the war against Ukraine, with the full invasion by Russia, we experience something that the this war is almost researched in real time. So it's very close. There's a lot of stuff on social media, like videos. Um, So there are, I would say, new circumstances. And I would like to know from Hannah, can you spot a difference between researching traumatizing circumstances before and after the start of the full-scale invasion by Russia due to these new ways we can research the war for yourself, but maybe also for your Ukrainian colleagues? Has something changed in how you deal with this or how you experience it?
0: I would say that the research methods, they've been there and they've been used before the full-scale invasion. What changed is the scope of topics and the speed, the temp of situation and the uh, hypothesis, the material, the needs. You basically, as you said, you observe that online online. You go in time with the events. But what comes with that is that the financing, the resources to study these um, needs, these events, to analyze the hypothesis, they are lacking behind due to the financial processes, this uh, annual budgeting, etc. So basically that generates the new um, feeling of frustration. When you you see the needs, you understand that you can address the need, but you don't have resources to deal with that. And that's an additional aspect that I observe among my colleagues' researchers that was not that evident before the invasion.
1: This links up to my, my next question to Christer. Because um, like Hannah, the researcher, you're not only a therapist who works with traumatized people, but you also work in community context. That is, you, you are close to the people, you work with them, you support their course. So how does this affect your work when you're so much actually a part of the people you work with? And would you say the effects are similar to what Hannah just said in regard to being involved herself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I can really relate to what Hannah just said, this feeling of helplessness, of you see that there's something to be done, you you know how this could happen, and then there's a whole red tape, a very similar thing is happening in, in community-based projects or um, civil society projects that I'm involved with and with friends. I think because we are experiencing this in real time, like you named, we, we're we getting the stress response of, we want to be doing something and, and solving this problem. And others are responding maybe in feeling of overwhelm and and freezing i feel like organizations um at least here in berlin there's a lot of amazing organizations that have activated a lot of resources to get things done and yet the time like you said hannah to really evaluate where is this resource best placed and how can we reach the people that need to be reached i think that's lacking because we're all kind of in Let's get this done. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a very similar situation that I experienced when I was working in Bosnia. This this feeling of to over overcome this helplessness is maybe um over activism of of really not taking the time to evaluate to have a a quick response that's um sustainable and regenerative not not just sustainable but also how can we make this as a long-term support not just for the people that we're supporting but the people that are doing the support at least i saw back then a sense of guilt and old belief systems with um activists or people working on the ground of like, oh yeah, okay, don't take time to think about how to do this because we just need to get it done and we need to help these people. And now I'm sensing that again, the full-scale invasion now is long enough that like the first group of people are now in burnout and their, their capacities are really, really limited. So the way we've been doing things like this old way of trauma response of just overdoing is not sustainable is actually causing harm the people that are in this and unfortunately is going to be in for a longer haul we need to think about how we're doing this that we're not harming the people that are supporting the situation I hope that answers your question I kind of went on a tangent there but I'm really passionate about this because I do see this same thing that I saw 30 years ago
1: are there any, from your perspective, practical advice not to have this cascade of guilt over activism burnout? out? I, I am,
2: um, it's a work in progress. I would say that uh, whatever I say now, I'm going to be adding on to maybe even the next month, but um I have found guidelines like from WHO of how to do this kind of work and I'm curious about why it doesn't get implemented in organizations like the need for very strict guideline for example about how many hours of material that you're working with so you're not listening to more than 4 or 5 hours of interviews a day that's of traumatizing experiences as a as a researcher. Or just one example, or having an implemented structure of supervision or even safe spaces where colleagues can meet. And if, the, if there's something coming up, there's an intervention right away, or there's steps within the organization. I found a questionnaire that's from the Center on Trauma and Children in the US. It's called Evidence in Action. It's about looking at structures and organizations about secondary trauma, stress-informed organizations. Like the organization itself could be looking at how, how are we supporting each other? How are we having systems where people can reach out and get immediate support? So those are my things. So looking at it systemically, like you said, Hannah, it's like it, this didn't happen before that it's showing up in economics. I think we can't be looking in boxes anymore. We need to look at the whole picture of how these things are interrelated.
1: Okay. We are right now in the second part of um, this podcast, which is about uh, securing mental health. So thank you very much to do this very smooth (laughs) transition. My Um, (laughs) pleasure. I would like now to turn the question to Hannah, because Hannah, you, on the one hand, you work in academia. You have led research projects. So. On the, on the level you work, and we all know nobody can change the system of funding, what are your steps to yeah. securing mental health like for your team, for yourself, for colleagues? Is, are there steps you already could take on the personal level, but also on the institutional level
0: or in your working groups? At the moment, and personally, I would say most of the steps that uh, I have, been taking on the personal level and i cannot say why is that happening but i second krista that at the organizational level or at the community level there is less of that and it's really missing, in my opinion. But personal, we can do uh, a lot for ourselves, including the very simple practices like music or um, something that please you and intentional change of the topic, not necessarily being the research topic, but maybe looking for the interesting findings in other areas. So you as a researcher still do research analysis, but not necessarily in the topic that is that traumatized. So it's sort of you allow yourself for a time out of this to uh, refresh your mind. That's kind of research-related trauma-releasing practices, (laughs) I don't know if I may say so. (laughs) overall but um i think uh, the aspect of researchers getting traumatized or retraumatized uh, as people not as professionals but as individuals is very much missing in today's uh, discussions both in academia and outside academia
1: Do you spot differences how academia in Denmark and in Ukraine are addressing these topics, like securing mental health, preparing researchers, or is there something the two systems can learn from each other?
0: Personally, I didn't. I think in Denmark, it's rather a topic that is, of course, on TV or in uh, some media, but not that much in the research or in the academic environment. So what I see is rather side um, observations or side interactions and very few researchers, research projects just started actually some months ago, not that much. While in Ukraine, it's the opposite. We, there are too much involvement, of, of course. Uh, and when I talk to people and tell them that, look, uh, maybe there is a need for a slowdown and allowing yourself some rest, then what I often hear both from researchers and from other individuals that, oh, it's not time for that. We cannot afford ourselves to take care of our mental health, basically. They don't put it that straight, but that's what it is.
1: So I would like to have the discussion a little bit more on academia as a system, but also as a workplace. So, Krista, you already touched about it a little bit, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on this. Which advice what you give to academia as an institution to deal with this fact? I mean, we have heard from Krista that a lot of researchers say we can't at the moment take care of this. So, some this would, from my perspective, maybe lead that there has to be a safeguarding uh, implement. What advice could you give on that if the academia or the institutions want to focus on that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think I'm hearing the same thing that you are hearing, Hannah. I don't have time for this. And and I believe also that the individuals need to look at self-care as not a luxury, but as a survival tool. (laughs) It's actually just psychohygienic. We don't think about brushing our teeth, I hope, and and self-care is part of that kind of hygiene that we need to be doing. And institutions, I don't have so much experience in academia, so I'm hoping that I'm not saying something totally off-base, but institutions in general to look at the system and how Um, how is this being modeled? How is this really being believed? Is it just kind of blah, blah? We need self-care, or we need to support or is it really implemented? Are there really conversations around personal safety and well-being? Are there care teams, for example, that people can refer to I have a quote from a colleague of mine, uh, marie celine Schulte, who's doing an 18-country study on gender-based violence, and I I really loved how she named it Space and Grace. I'm just going to read it to you. The researchers need space and grace to navigate research within their own capacities and as they know best in the high-risk context. We need to keep supporting them and protecting and managing their emotional and physical safety and well-being at every stage of the study. And I found that really interesting because it's not, con- it's not like we op- start a study and say, oh, let's think about this. So who's going to be doing the supervision? I feel like it needs to be really from the foundation that the researchers are given time to do, listen to music and do things that bring them joy as a balance, yet also from donors and from, the, from the academia not to put pressure on um, timeframes yeah, the grace of, of trusting these people know the tempo that they can be in and maybe a system that's set up that allows for a little bit more support along the way. And not just wait till somebody can't do it anymore, but how is the design of research being done? I'm getting a little irritated. I get often asked to, to come into teams and work on resilience and it's kind of seen as something each person needs to learn how to take care of themselves and it gets me really frustrated because it can't be looked at individually it needs to be looked at systemically how is the structure set up is this a structure that's maybe saying take care of yourself but not allowing the time or there's not even space to look at the organization's culture because there's sometimes a culture of if somebody does uh, only 50 hours of work a week, then um, look down at you know there's there's company cultures that are can it can be very toxic and so I'm unconscious like this belief systems that I mentioned of feeling guilty if you're slowing down or feeling guilty if you're not in five different projects at once or you said no no like I don't have time for this like, that that should be just part of the structure of an organization of having these little islands of <laughs> regenerative moments.
1: I would like to ask my last question to Hannah. So um, from what you have heard right now from Frist, which advices would you consider more helpful or even more realistic in terms of what academia could do for researchers and their mental health? So what would you hope for or what would you expect from academia to, to change? And, um, yeah, so where are your wishes, your hopes, your realism?
0: I want to give a small example from Danish culture that I felt very interesting and uh, transferable to other areas is that uh, this uh, parental leave where both mom and dad have to take some time. And if daddy doesn't take it, then it's gone. So you cannot transfer it to mom. And I think um, with that in mind, we can... um, Elaborate on Krista's suggestions that some of the activities can be a part of the project from the scratch. And you cannot use that time for more research. It will be just not financed. Okay, so you have to take, I don't know, um, some um, lecture or you you can... Um, have a lecture. You can invite a lecture on some topics that will help academia, will help researchers to reload their brains, for example, or uh, some um, classes uh, that help to release trauma can be a part of the project. Just a mandatory part of the project, and if you don't take it. You cannot use this money on more research. That's it. So that something along those lines, I think, is quite realistic to implement. And it doesn't require a lot of um, new skills to make it realized.
1: So you're arguing for kind of a mandated... Off time, mandated from the beginning of a project, trauma-informed mental health securing measurements where the red (laughs) pencil can't be used.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, I am.
1: Sounds very good. We will send this podcast to all money-donating and financing institutions, at least in Germany.
0: Uh, If I may... It's, it's actually, I'm not speaking out of blue. We had projects before where part of the project was personal time management class or writing class, something like that. And of course, researchers were not just mandated to take them. You could have chosen out of two or three uh, which one uh, speaks more to you, which one you think is more relevant. So. I think there are examples before, there were examples before, and that's why I think it's very realistic to implement it just now with a focus on mental health. I totally
1: agree. From my own perspective, as somebody who has worked for a long time at the university, I maybe would add that it's something which we should especially also start with PhD projects because it means to get people from the very beginning of their academic career used to it. And because these people are mostly, are usually the most vulnerable, like in the academic system at least, and the ones with the least financial resources to take care of it themselves. Before I close the podcast, I would like to ask both of you, is there something you you have missed, I have missed, something you would like to add at this point before we close?
2: I'm just super excited to hear what you just said, it's and that it is happening in different places. And I, I want to say how visionary it is. And it takes people like you, and it takes people like having these conversations to break the status quo. Just because we've always done things in a certain way doesn't mean that's the way you do things. So it takes people like yourself and other people that I've met in academia that say, hey, wait a minute, we can design this differently even though it's always been done this or that way. So it's getting me really excited just to hear that it is happening in certain places or these conversations like you inviting us in, casting to talk about this. That's, yeah, that's also another step in this transformation that is not going to be easy, but it it's opening perspectives of possibilities. So
0: thank you for that. <laughs> Hannah, anything to add? I just want to comment that... Um... We're living through the times where everything changes very quickly. And uh, for the brain, actually, this speed is very traumatic. And um, it translates to burnout, to many unfinished research projects because of that. And I think we can do better.
1: That's true. Very fine final words for this podcast, at least. Since Krista thanked for having this conversation, I think it's now my part to thank you both for being guests on the podcast today and for sharing your experience and also your personal stories. Of course, we should also thank the people who are behind this podcast, which is Stephanie Orfall and Hannah Guleman from the TOYS communications department but on the other hand it is Anastasia Leuchina from the unit at TOYS which actually brought us all together so thanks to all of you our speakers the people behind it and of course our listeners for listening in.